You're listening to Star Trek, the Undiscovered Podcast. Everybody, and thank you for joining us once again for one more time in season one because we made it. This is our season one finale. Everybody, round of applause for season one finale. All right, we have been at this six months now. It has been so exciting and so humbling, too, for all you listeners to give us the feedback that you're enjoying the show and digging what we do. We can't thank you enough. So let's get this party started. We are, as promised, talking about the movies tonight. But first, let's meet our panel. Joining us, it's been quite a few shows since we've had him on. Ken Radner is back. What's up, Ken? Hey, everybody. How you doing? I'm really glad to speak to all of you again. And this is great. Our first season completed. I'm very proud. I think everyone's did a fantastic job. And I'm so thankful for everybody that's been listening to us and and keeping us along. So thank you, the listeners, for listening to us. Thank you, Ken. And hopefully at the end of the show, you'll have some information about your upcoming podcast. Joining us once again, he was here the first episode. He's here the last episode of this season. Mr. Dan Hulley. What's up, Dan? Good evening or afternoon or wherever it is when you're listening to this but uh i'm just happy i've made three appearances in a row that were actually scheduled without um chaos befalling my life for once and a movie uh, this is a movie uh episode uh to boot which you had been missing the films but that's a perfect segue because we're talking about the films as a whole let me add in in case you didn't know that i am your moderator greg but i will be giving input tonight on these films. Um, I still have been forgetting after all that, all these weeks, I've been forgetting to introduce myself, but now I got it. Okay, so as far as our guest tonight, very special guest, because one thing that I always say about the Star Trek movies is that I really appreciate when fans of movies, cinephiles, appreciate these movies for what they are. You know, they don't look away and go, well, it's Star Trek, I'm not really into Star Trek, or whatever some of these per se, I know a big, uh, the, the most famous non-Trek watchers who enjoyed more or less some of the Star Trek movies were Siskel and Ebert, <laughs> but they are not here tonight. But Sean Faust is our cinephile guest for tonight. What's up, Sean? Well, lots of stuff. If you tilt your head back, you'll see some of it. <laughs> Thanks for having me That's- here. I, I like movies, but I also do like the television show Star Trek as well. I'm not as up to date on most of them, almost all of them, as you are, but I I do enjoy a good film and a good film score. Yes, we will talk about those scores because the Star Trek films are, that's part of their makeup, maybe more than half of them, is they just got such great classic scores. 
putting some of the greatest film composers on the map with Star Trek films. So you have a perfect segue there. You are a fan of the films. We've talked about this. That's why you're here. Where did you stand, though, before the films happened in your life? Did you gravitate to the movies just first and foremost? What was your history, though, on watching the series, any of the series? Well, being that I was born at a very early age, and I've never <laughs> been any older than I am now, uh, Star Trek had always been around. The first movie I saw, I'm pretty sure, was the first one on HBO. But my, I think my indoctrination would be the second movie. But... Channel 11, when it was WPIX in the late 70s, early 80s, around dinner time, was always showing uh, the original series. And then Saturday mornings had the cartoons. So that it was always on at some point, whether it was dinner and then the news was on or whatever crap was happening. But I think I fell in love um, when Spock died. Is that a spoiler? Do people know that that happened? <laughs> Um, and we always put a warning for the Star Trek newbies in case they haven't seen any films uh, to refrain. So that's another perfect segue. We are talking about all the films tonight and all the errors. But being that I had experience doing the MSV podcast SNL movie roundtable, we will not be giving in-depth reviews of every movie, except we will go over each era, the Kirk era, the Picard era, the JJ era, and just give our general impressions of, of these films. Um, so as we are starting with the Kirk era, let's talk about what happened and, and how these films, the, the history of how they came to be. Two words, Star Wars. Star Wars was huge. Uh, Paramount had Star Trek, didn't know what they were doing with it. They were tinkering with it for years about whether they were gonna do the phase two series or something, because it definitely the, the fandom grew over the years way after it was canceled. So then came Star Wars, which said, hey, let's cash in on this Star Wars thing. And they made Star Trek, the motion picture. And thus the movies were born. We all know what happened with Star Trek, the motion picture. But let's hear general impressions on them as a whole. Sean, as you are our guest, you look at the Kirk era, you look at what we've got out of it. What are your general impressions of these films as a whole? As a whole, the Kirk era? Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are some movies, man. So they <laughs> they started with the first one. Yeah. And yeah. yeah. And then they made a good one. And then they 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 you gotta go in order. And I was like the motionless picture is gorgeous to look at. And I know it's supposed to be in 3D. So I mean the visuals are gorgeous. The Goldsmith score, need I say more, no rhyme intended. Um but just aside from Faye Grant's husband, who became the priest on that TV show, and um, um, the, the woman from Megaforce, who sadly died of cancer not long after doing Megaforce, uh, not, not a lot happens in that movie. We're in a side warp thing. What, what is that side warp thing? Oh, that's right. We wanted a 3D movie. And we want to have a movie-length movie that is more than just a Mariner's film about Space Dock. So, yeah, I mean, I love the score. I love that Jerry Goldsmith used that bong thing that James Horner used in Battle Beyond the Stars. It's like bong. It's like some kind of moog through a thing. And that's my uh, professional description is moog through a thing. Bong. 
for Star Trek, the motion picture. We, we, yes, we've been reviewing movies solo on this show, and I'm thinking we might do all of them. But and it'll be interesting to talk about Star Trek, the motion picture. I know I have my I have my feelings on it. Um, but one thing that it did do was it did gross enough for them to do a second one. And the second one, of course, which we did talk about on this show, um, it was a make or break Star Trek thing. If this movie wasn't good, there would be no more Star Trek as we know it today. So then came the two, three, four trilogy as a whole. What are your feelings of those? I mean, two, need I say more? Two is two. Two is great because everybody's got a red shirt and diehard Trek fans in the theater the first time that movie came out were like, holy shit, wait, what's going to happen here? So that was a brilliant thing to do. Uh, I mentioned Jimmy Horner. We got some Jimmy Horner. I love me some Jimmy Horner. Been a fan of Jimmy Horner since I was knee-high to a grasshopper. That's how old I am that I use phrases like knee-high to a grasshopper. Uh, Two is just a, a perfectly made film. With or without the deleted scenes. I don't care about Scotty's nephew, but apparently he does in the extended version. But that score, <laughs> so gorgeous. Um, the third movie, I think it's fine. It's got my favorite moment in Star Trek still, um, which is stealing the Enterprise. Uh, although Mariner's film, her fan film, and season one of Lower Decks might, might be my favorite Star Trek scene now. But... Three, it, it's, it slows down a lot at the end. It does, it's not consistent. Um, Shatner's Christopher Walken impression is kind of, I have had enough of you. It's, it's got to go, right? And, you know, it's like, you Klingon bastard, you killed my son. And he's like, ah, oh, sorry about that. Like, just Jim the Drunk and Denny Crane fighting on a cliff. And then it, it just slows down after that. So really good movie. Like it a lot. And then you've got Police Academy, The Voyage Home, which is probably, I like it. It's a great 80s comedy. It's an all right Star Trek movie. I think it's the first Star Trek where we get Kurtwood Smith. And we also have in our fourth movie, the first and also, thankfully, last terrible, god-awful score that just, it would have been perfect in a police academy-adjacent film because everything was like a joke or everything was like, hey, we're kids, we're going to go see the third-grade play. That's the soundtrack for a third-grade play. Um, it just, it doesn't do it for me. The jokes are great. Uh, I think all the delivery is great, and if you haven't, I, I don't suggest watching the blooper reel for Star Trek Four because their improv sucks. It's not funny at all. Nimoy is not funny. His improv is uh, bad. Um, Star Trek Four: The Voyage Home, great 80s comedy, just the worst. I hate that film score so much. No, no offense to Mr. Leonard we've Rosenthal. gone over this to Mr. Rosenman. Yeah, we've gone over that. I don't know if I see it the way you do, but hey, opinion, no, opinions are of art. All opinions of art are valid. All right. So now we're Except getting to this five. one. You're all wrong. <laughs> if you like that score, you're wrong. Like, this is not an opinion. This is a fact. Um, five. We get Goldsmith back. So finally, some real music. Uh, a couple good jokes. Cybok. Uh, really, I love his performance. I really do love that guy's performance as Cybok. Uh, 
there's there's a certain scene on top of a hill, which was uh, great for my formative years with Uhura, and uh, <laughs> I still love it today. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, exactly, sir. It's just a uh, uh, look. Look at this forearm. Um, I love the score. I love the score a lot, actually. I love the cinematography. But what does God need with a starship? I mean, I think the funny moments that are funny are funny, but the unintentionally funny moments are really funny. Uh, and that's all I have to say about that. Then the great bookend of six. What a perfect. Well, did you? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I, I love that one so much. And so we got some more Kurtwood Smith. I'm always, I'm always down for Kurtwood Smith. And now we've got David Warner in his second of the film roles because being a drunk on a planet isn't enough. He has to be a Klingon. Uh, I love that score too. We got Mars being used for a film score again. Cause you know, in case you never saw a little movie called star Wars. Uh, that a lot of that score is based on Mars as well, or holds the planets in whole. Uh, Klingons speaking Shakespeare, not a fan of Shakespeare, but I mean, if Christopher Plummer wants to uh, get dressed up as a Klingon and quote Shakespeare to me all day, I am down for it. And just as long uh, as it's in the original Klingon, of course, of course, yes. You, you know, you made me lose my train of thought. I'm just kidding, <laughs> I had no train of thought. I love six. Six is probably my second favorite Star Trek film. All right. Love it. So generally, again, we go to the motion picture for you. Uh, kind of sounds like your least favorite of the Kirk era. Five. Okay. okay. Five is my least favorite. Uh, I maybe it's my maybe it's my second least favorite because it's shorter than the motionless picture. <laughs> I don't mean to disrespect the that first movie, but it's wonderful to listen to. Uh, trivia question for you. Do you know if it did get a 3D release? I don't believe it did. Okay. I don't think, I think they ran out of budget before they were able to do anything 3D. So they said, well, we've got all these establishing shots. And what they didn't use, they used in the second one when they were going to space dock. So, yeah. Yeah, the second one was just genius the way that they had less of a budget because of the outcome of the first one. But nailed it. All right. Ken Radner, your take on the Kirk years of cinema. Well, I'm, I'm going to start out by saying, but and I'm sure a bunch of you guys know this. So the motion picture was actually supposed to be like the second iteration of a Star Trek TV show. Right. And uh, they even had characters and actors that were signed for the TV show that when it fell through, they put in the movie. Kind of an aside to that. I think out of out of all of the you know original series movies, the motion picture had the worst uniforms because everybody looked like they were either wearing medical scrubs or pajamas. It didn't have a uniform look to it. Um, it just I, I like I couldn't figure out what they were trying to do. Are you? Like, did I just walk into like some kind of, you know, weird training school in the early 70s? You know, did I, did I just, you know, walk into a place where 
you know, the designer is like, you know what? I only want light pastels. Everything is light pastels. Like it, it didn't. And it also, if you want to go along with the whole idea of different uniforms for different divisions within Starfleet, there was none of that. It was all, everything was just like light blue or light tan and short sleeve shirts. You know, I, 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 I don't get you. it. Yeah. You, you mentioned the pastels. Do you think that this film uh, was early inspiration for Wes Anderson? And once more, are you complaining about Ilya's uniform? Because I hope you're not. No, no, no. I'm not complaining about Ilya's. Now, Ilya's uniform. Sorry, right, right. right, right, right. But Ilya's uniform pre or post conversion to the AI. Oh, I'm talking like V'ger. Okay. No, no, no. Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, yeah. come on. You, yeah. she, you okay. know, cool. yeah. she was wearing like, you know, Xanadu space goddess, you know, stuff on that. I mean, she belonged in Barbarella. It was, that was, you know, part of what you were getting. Psychedella. Um, but it was, you know, despite all that stuff being said, and despite all the comments of it, there were certain parts of that movie that I can't get away from that I really, really enjoy. Um, so one of the things I think is the way that Spock's voice was mixed in audio, that they gave him so much bass in his voice. It's like, it's almost like they overdid it so much. I don't know if that was a matter of just at that time, he just happened to be on top of, you know, his vocal game or they just kind of mixed it, but his voice seemed to have like a punch to it that you didn't really notice in the other movies. Um, the scene when he exits the enterprise on the thruster, you know, attachment, that whole section, I really like that. I don't know why I just keep, for some reason, I just really like it. Maybe if it's even just for the point that it's, you know, it's just like an external aid and he only has so many thrusts and he has to time everything right. And, you know, that sort of makes it more like, you know, what... Everybody argues, and then you have to refute it that Star Trek was kind of the more realistic out of the science fantasy that was coming out of the time. But just the idea that he had to, you know, he had to um, time the thrust to get the proper amount of, uh, you know, momentum and inertia just so he could get the timing right. And that's the thing that people always, you know, usually go back to on Star Trek is that they try to make it, I guess at the time, what was, you would, could kind of say it was a harder sci-fi, but not really. It was just because it wasn't about space wizards. So, um, beyond the stars. <laughs> that was, I mean, come on, if John Boy is going to go out in a spaceship with boobies, how else are you going to do it? So, like but it was, uh. Yep. And then, oh, and by the way, uh, Scotty's nephew. All right. And I feel a little hurt because he was Tony from Escape from Witch Mountain and Return to Witch Mountain back in like, yeah, I know. But come on, I grew up with it. I was like eight or nine when the movie came out. And what eight or nine year old kid didn't want to be some weird half space kid that had psychic powers? So I just I just remember those movies. I watched them all the time. And then I saw him and I was like, oh, look, it's Tony. You know, and then he never did anything ever again, although he did a ton of voiceovers. But, you know, what are you going to do? 
um, it was, it really had its moments. And that's what hurt about it so much is that there was a lot of it that was just so wooden and stiff and they obviously didn't know what they were doing. And they were obviously, like we said, trying to compete against Star Wars, even to the point where they were making this with the idea that we're going to merchandise stuff and we're going to have action figures and we're going to, but the problem was that their sense of scale with Star Wars, you could have an X-Wing fighter or a Millennium Falcon with the same size action figures. With Star Trek, there's no chance you could have an Enterprise or a Klingon battlecruiser. The thing would be the same size as the USS flag from G.I. Joe. I mean, the thing would be like seven, eight feet long because you got like, you know, 400 people on this thing. So it's so that was the one thing they they kind of never really thought out. And I remember myself being very underwhelmed with the offerings they had because the action figures weren't well done. I was big into articulation and that's when GI Joe's were starting to get there. So they had the, they had elbows and hips and knees and, you know, and star and star Trek was just trying to go to straight for the um, five points of articulation. Go ahead, John. Do you remember like, so you're bringing up like the action figures and how they worked like that. Do you remember what a big deal it was when GI Joe added the swivel arms? Got the rotation, got the bicep rotation. That was what ruined every other action figure series for me, because unless you had a waist swivel and a bicep rotation, I was not interested. But one of the so I missed out on movies had figures that did that. Or it was not, one of the shows. They had bicep rotation, but I think not a waist. There was something think, that yeah. was missing. It was they the might have had elbows, but yeah. And and it was just that's what killed me with mask which now I know we're really getting off into the hinterlands. Yeah, but getting mask, into toys, yeah. Maybe, maybe we need to do elbows. a toy at this point. Yeah, no, they had elbows, waist, hips, knees, but no bicep swivel. Yeah. And they were also like an inch shorter or something like that. So it's oh, like- they, they were only off. an inch, I would say. I just yeah, saw yeah. the but recently, yeah. The other thing, Ken, about that though is, and I, I had some of those action figures because- they were, uh, I, my cousins might have had some because that movie was from 79 and I was a baby in 79, but I did have those figures. There's nothing about Star Trek, the motion picture that had any kid appeal to it whatsoever. It was doomed with those toys to start. You could have an Enterprise. Hey, I remember kids uh, collecting TNG, 87 TNG figures, and I've got some of those in the packages uh, in storage. But yeah, there was just, the, the the motion picture was as much as I love Star Trek and I don't like to say anything negative about it is that they were they missed the boat with being anything close to Star Wars with the motion picture. Um, yeah. Any any final thoughts though for you with the motion picture? How old were you when yet when that came out? If you don't mind my asking. I was so I was, huh? I was nine. Okay, and for I mean the longest I was nine. <laughs> that was the first new Star Trek for a while. So do you remember seeing it and like you couldn't wait to see it maybe and being disappointed with it or being happy they were at least all back together? Because no, I, so it, it did I, well I did enough see- to get the sequel, which was great, you know. Yeah, so I did see it in the theater. All right. And, you know, for those of you that have heard the podcast before and equally for those of you who hadn't, I had been watching Star Trek since a very young age. I mean, my my father introduced it to me 
you know, when I was probably like six and I would watch it on PBS. And so I was very much into it. And, and, you know, I sort of got into any kind of science fiction. And then of course, Star Wars comes out and I, and I like Star Trek too, because at that time it was what Star Wars and Star Trek. I don't even think Battlestar Galactica came out yet. It was, I think it was space 1999 was the other one from around that time. So, and I, I might be wrong, um, but like I, I devoured it and I went and saw it in the theater and I just got, you know, much as any nine-year-old is going to do, you're going to look and you're going to see the parts that are most fantastic and that are the most familiar to you. And that's what I pulled out of it. I didn't until years watching it later, you know, you don't look at things with a critical eye when you're that age. You just remember it as something as, wow, this was really great. And of course, you know, being that young and they bring a Voyager, V'ger. And I was like, oh, wow, that's amazing. And I'm like, and now I think back, I'm like, oh, you had 40 year old guys writing stuff that a nine year old would think was great. It's, yeah. it's like, you know, <laughs> you know, now yeah. I go back to that and I'm like, oh, but I was nine. What, what you going to do? Um, but I think it was it was really great that it happened. I'm glad that it happened. Um, the whole part, I really love the whole part about how transporters still don't really work yet. That was like, that was just, I mean, just that amount of grotesqueness in a Star Trek, you know, film doesn't happen very often. It does happen, but not very often. And just the idea that they've been transporting people for probably at that point over 100 years and they still haven't figured it out yet. Have you heard yeah. the Badger theory from Breaking Bad about the transporters? What is that? That every time you beam up, it kills you and makes a clone of you? Yeah, that's the one. Yeah, yeah I did. I, I read I read a whole novel, not a novel. Well, it was supposed to be a research book called The Biology of Star Trek. That was written by a research biologist. And then there was a whole other thing about they went into the guy who was supposed to have developed it and what he tried to do. And he was trying to make it not that way. But like when you listen to like what Michio Kaku would say about it and what this woman says in her book, there's literally no other way it could be. And the thing that really I realized at that point is, do you realize that? Probably at some point when you sign up for Starfleet, you're literally signing up that I hereby give my life at this moment. Like you're, you're <laughs> allowing yourself to die as soon as you sign into Starfleet. Because once you sign in and they approve you, they beam you over to Starfleet headquarters. Welcome so to Starfleet. Might, Don't forget to sign the waiver. You're murdered. Right? You get murdered immediately. Yeah. Yep. And all you are now is just, you know, kind of like, you know, we stuck a thumb drive in and downloaded everything. Have fun. You know, so, yeah, that that always I'm still wrestling to that, you know, uh, with that to this day, because it seems like legit logically that's how it should happen. But of course, Star Trek wanted to do. No, everything is in the beam and and it just reconstitutes you. There's nothing that's different because it's actually the physical energy patterns that we got from, you know, the, the molecules. And I'm like, uh, uh, techno babble, you know, but, um, so that was, but, but I thought it was great. It definitely had its great moments to it. I'm glad that it happened. I don't regret it in any way, much as some of the other original series movies I will speak about. 
Um, yeah, take uh, take it as a trilogy with two, three, four. Okay, so um, two and three. Well, so I'm gonna I'm gonna be upset that you included four, but anyway, um, two was you know you you can't you can't get well obviously you can't get better than that than an original series. It's been said there's really not a whole lot I can say about it, you know, except for. Now I found photo evidence that Montalban's chest was actually real. And so now I'm willing to admit that. And also when you look at past pictures of him, the man was a bit of a chest beast. Um, disproportionately, he, his chest was very, very big. And then you're like, but his arms are like kind of, I mean, he obviously works out, but to the size of his chest, like it can't be real. No, it was real. Like they got pictures of him walking in like a flamenco outfit with no shirt on. And you're like, this guy's chest is like three times the width of his hips. It was, yeah, it, it was, it was ridiculous. But, and just the fact that he kept it up to that age, you know, he managed to do it still an excellent actor. I think they, again, a lot of, you know, Dante's Inferno, a lot of uh, Shakespearean quotes. I think a lot of the times that Star Trek shines is when they have the villains doing, you know, classic literature quotes. I think it just always works because that stuff carries such weight with it. And, you know, they tend to carry a lot of weight with them. If you're going to be an enemy of the Federation, you better, you know, bring your a game because, you know, there's no other way to get through it. It was just great in any, in, you know, every way. I love how just the whole idea of eugenics wars has ripples through every single series and so much so that they keep having to try and retcon it every, you know, few years because they keep telling different stories about it. Um, but it was so not even conceivably, obviously the best original series movie. Um, and, and I, I have no doubts about that. Um, going into three, they, they obviously, when you're coming off a movie like two, topping it is probably not going to happen. And that's basically what happened in this situation. Um, they tried what they can. They did a decent job. They had to replace Savick. So there was a lot of stuff that switched around that kind of derailed you in a way. And... Christopher Lloyd was great. I mean, he was, again, enemy being very classically actor trained. It was, it was fantastic. And they, and this might've been, I mean, correct me. I'm probably wrong, but this might've been one of the first times they actually spoke Klingon for an extended period. Like, I'm not sure if in, in, cause in Wrath of Khan, I don't think they, they had much Klingon in, in there. They didn't. The, the whole, the whole first scene of the motion picture, they're speaking Klingon, I believe. Oh, they're speaking Klingon. All right. Yeah. So yeah, yeah I wasn't sure. I just remember yeah. there being a lot of Klingon in it. Yeah. In this, and, in the yeah. third one. Yeah. Yeah. And just, you know, the, they got, they also got into, you know, Klingon society a little bit more to show them how they are in their ships, how they relate to each other. You know, that was that was really nice, which is not something that you would expect. And um, it was it was very it, it was also weird and interesting. Just the whole idea with Spock giving his soul to bones and then him taking it back from him 
and just the idea that he would give the guy who obviously loves him as a brother, but outwardly hates him the most out of everybody, but he's just doing it as an act because he's crotchety and he's going to be, I'm going to be the one I'm going to trust you with my soul, you know, not Kirk who is, you know, you always have been and will, you know, you always have been, will be my friend. He doesn't give that guy his soul. He gives it to the guy who was almost yelling racial slurs at him through the entire (laughs) series. You know, so that was very interesting. And and that's, I like that, how that gave like a depth to their relationship, showing that they really do have that great kind of relationship. And sometimes uh, one of my favorite sayings is familiarity breeds contempt. So, so it shows that they obviously, there was so much contempt there because they knew each other so well. And that's why McCoy could always get under Spock's skin a lot and say that because he knew how to push his buttons, which is what a doctor can do if you do it the wrong way. So it was great. It was a nice continuation. I felt it was kind of a placeholder. Um, so there, there was a lot of stuff that was missing there. So then we get to the voyage home. Now, I like the best thing I like about the voyage home. There's two things. The first thing is the idea that after the voyage home, almost every Starfleet vessel had a cetacean uh, level in their, in their starship. So they had basically a containment area that would have whales with cybernetic devices in them because somehow they were able to sense, I guess, because they have magnetic sensors, kind of like sharks do. They were able to uh, detect magnetic fields and uh, help them to navigate better, which I thought was amazing. Also, the idea that, you know, whales, and I think some of them might have had dolphins on them also. They're actually intelligent beings. And if you give them a way to communicate that we could understand, they do it. So I thought that was a great way. That was something that was great that was birthed out of that movie. The idea of the slingshot, you know, exceeding the highest warp speed to take you back in time. You know, that became a a big meme in Star Trek. And the double dumbass on you. That was so, you know, first time, and I've spoken before in other episodes about the first time someone actually got to do a real curse. You could kind of consider this the first time someone actually cursed, because I guess at that time, ass was kind of a curse not like it is now but well there was also it was like when, did they wait when did they said dipshit in that one yeah no sir no dipshit yeah. no ma'am no dipshit no didn't no ma'am no dipshit yeah you're not trying to blah 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 or pull some dipshit on me like that no ma'am no dipshit hmm. okay all right so then there you go i mean just the, the first the first situation in which they actually allowed cursing in the movie so it made it great it was it was fun getting back to their time travel routes and, you know, instead of having them go back to the thirties, what happens if they came back today? You know? So, I mean, that was the whole point of the movie and it was, it was okay, but it was, I don't know. Something just didn't click with it with me. Okay. And, you know, and it just began and just that one. And then once we got into five, um, it started a bit of a downward spiral for me. 
because they 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 left me with a bunch of years before they were able to kind of redeem themselves. With six though, but you enjoyed say so you moderated our review no, of six. Right. That's why yeah. you know, and here's the thing is that five the 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 problem is is that I think it was like Sean said, the Spock's brother in this was really the same thing of where you have he wasn't necessarily the villain in this one. That's what was great too is that he wasn't even necessarily a villain. He was just uh, an antagonist, but he, wa- but he was doing it. He had legitimate reasons for doing what he would do. And his performance, again, was so great. You have the antagonist that their performances are better than the cast performance. So it had that aspect to it, but then the rest of it just got so dumb. And, and it really just, you know, it, it, it just bothered me because they had returning, ca- returning actors. So you felt like they could have done them some justice. And it was just, you know, that was, that was a rough one. And then I felt six because I had such a bad taste in my mouth for a good, what was it, five years? So I was, no, I was going only two, with, though. Yeah. Well, it was, no, 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 five was 89. Right, from five. Right. I'm talking about four and five. So from four to six. Oh, I see. Four, okay, yes. Yeah, four brought me down. It continued with five and then six. I liked it the first couple of times I saw it. I had my little visual issues with it. But I'm very, very thankful that you had us watch this again because now I watch it with a more critical eye. It actually was a great way of redeeming the whole series. They, they really made it um, a lot better, and I really enjoyed it. And I'm I'm glad that they wound it up that way. So that was and and six was fantastic. Adding a little courtroom drama has been seen in a bunch of Star Trek episodes. You know, showing, bringing. You know, I guess you could kind of say the racial aspect into it. Showing how old prejudices die hard. Showing you how people can, even through all that, attempt to work together for the benefit of a greater good. It was it was done really well, and and you could tell. But and they made this a point of it through most of the movies. There, this was the old guard coming to the end of their duty, and it was it was it almost seemed like every other episode, every other movie was one more time, just one more time. Just one more time. And then, then finally they're like, no, 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 we're done now. But then they actually did one more time. So, well, um, but, but yeah. that, yeah. Yeah, no, a very interesting stuff. You know, I didn't, I didn't know that you were not the hugest fan of the Voyage Home. Yeah, it was, it was just, there was, that's the thing is there was stuff about it that I really liked, but I, I just thought the, the stuff in modern times was, was kind of silly. And then, the thing that always got me, because at that point, so, so I was 15, so I was starting to even get to like basic ideas of like what temporal mechanics might be from a science fiction viewpoint. And just the idea that Scotty would go back and show a guy how to create transparent aluminum. And then his excuse is, how do we know he didn't invent it? And it's like, Scotty would have known who invented it. So he could have just taken McCoy aside and said, this is the guy that invents it. You know, it doesn't say how, gotcha. but I was just like, you're, you're really willing to just 
like I understand cowboy diplomacy, but that kind of, you know, you realize you're going to have section 32 agents coming back, like just three seconds later and killing that guy and doing it, you know, changing everything else. Section 32. Anyway. <laughs> oh, did I get the number wrong? Is it 31? Okay. 31. Okay. All right. On, on that note. So uh, I'm Holly, old. <laughs> Your take on on the Kirk era? I think I think both these guys covered it uh, more in depth than uh, than I probably can. Uh, but uh, so one, the motion picture is probably my least watched of the Kirk era Star Trek films. Um, it just it it. It's a hard watch for me. The only time I ever watch it all the way through is if I decide I'm going to do a rewatch of the films straight through. It just, it, it, I don't know. It bores me to tears. <laughs> um, I think I'm just going to, just going to kind of crank through here. Um, yeah, yeah. Wrath of, yeah. Wrath of Khan. Fantastic movie. Probably in rotation for, uh, top three Star Trek movie. Uh, they constantly rotate with me. So I love the villain. I love the interplay between Kirk and Khan and uh, just everything about it and the, the, the power that Khan exerts. And I just think it's such a great movie. And even not as a Star Trek fan, just an excellent, excellent movie. Search for Spock is it's a necessary placeholder to continue the story because if you're going to bring spock back you need to give a movie to bring spock back in uh there's some moments and again with the interplay between you know spock and bones is always fantastic and it's particularly good in this movie um and as as ken had said borderline racist stuff i feel like mccoy in towards Vulcans, it's not borderline racist. It's completely racist old man yelling at clouds. I mean, between the, the green blood insults, the pointed ear insults, you know, the whole thing. There is no, there's no slight racism there. But it comes from a place of love. Um, so, where was I? Uh, Voyage Home. Uh, I love the Voyage Home, and I know a lot of people do, and I know you guys aren't you know, the most fond of it. There's something about it that I'm very fond. It's of it. <laughs> Oh, I know. I know you're very fond of it. It's, it's very much a comfort movie to me. It's one of those yeah. that I can throw on at any given point. It's one of those that, I mean, I've watched with my young kids and they get a laugh out of it. Not even really being Trek fans. Um, I love the inanity of some of the, some of the one-liners The they are not the hell your whales or he did a lot of LDS or um, I'm blanking on, I mean, double dumbass to you, of course. Uh, I also do love the fact that the, the bus punk makes an appearance in season two of Picard. <laughs> that was uh, possibly one of my favorite cameos. Um, I, I always loved the effect of the bird of prey uh, coming down and squishing the trash can while it's cloaked. I always, there's something about that effect that I always thought was one of the coolest, like 10 second clips of effects footage 
you know, simple, but fascinating and just very cool. Um, let's see, five, as I'm cranking through, am I on five? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking uh, five, forward to this one from you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, five is probably my second least rewatched, um, to be honest with you. I don't remember a damn thing about five off the top of my head. Uh, it's been such a long time since I've watched it. Um, yeah, I, I really, I, it is completely blank to me and I will be a hundred percent honest with you that I have probably watched, as I said, that in the motion picture, the least amount of times. And for some reason that one has left such a little impression in my head that I, I don't really have much of a reaction to it. Now, six, the boy, or, uh, the, the undiscovered country. I, I could probably wax poetic upon for hours. Uh, not only top three, usually one or two Star Trek film of mine. One of my favorite films in general. I love the fact that it's a Star Trek political thriller. I love uh, the court scene. I, I love even even the... Pepto-Bismol pink Klingon floating blood, the, the horrible animation for the Klingon floating blood, um, the accusations towards Kirk, the, the, you know, the rescue, the scenes in the prison. I mean, I just absolutely, it, 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 you know, it, it's just, it's so good. It's so well-written. It's so well-acted. Um, the villains are good. The, you know, them tearing apart the ship in investigation, them counting the torpedoes. I just something about the, the amount of detail put into such little things or, you know, them, them finding the boots in the guy's locker and dropping them and start accusing him. They look down and he's got the, the webbed feet from an, you know, an alien Star Trek that I don't think you ever see again. <laughs> um, I do also have a slight, I don't know if it's a, a bias towards it, but, um, I believe I'm quite a bit younger than you guys. <laughs> uh, but Undiscovered Country was the the first Star Trek film I saw. It was actually the first movie I saw in theaters. So, and I think I was... What year was uh, Undiscovered Country out? 91. 91? So I was, I was seven. So, yeah. The Thanksgiving around and, Thanksgiving of 91. Yeah. And I had, a, I had a choice to go see that or... Um, the Christmas movie where the, the reindeer gets stuck and the family rescues the reindeer. And uh, my parents were, were shocked that I chose to go see Star Trek, the undiscovered country with them. That's a hell of a great choice. <laughs> uh, Cause I don't know. So you're talking about is this reindeer stuck. Prancer. In the... Yeah. I think Prancer. that was it. Yep. I because think that I was it. Cat, I had a, my cat's name was Prancer at the time. So I remember Sorry. Jean I Galecki hope you guys do an episode um, of, of Prancer then, please. When we do Prancer, <laughs> yes, we'll definitely please, have you back. Uh, I mean, it, it got brought up. I got to hear all about it. <laughs> so uh, that is my quick rundown, I guess, of the, uh, the Kirk. Great. Great stuff, Holly. Yeah, I, the only thing I would follow up is with three. I recently watched it because we're actually going to do a full review of three for a bonus episode. And I recently watched it. I'm yelling at it to be better. Because I'm appreciating it, what a great story it is, but yelling at it does it that it wouldn't appeal that I'm not 
if I was watching it from the outside looking in as someone who just watched Wrath of Khan, and that was my first take on Star Trek, and if I loved Wrath of Khan, I'm looking at three and I'm like, yeah, you are. It reminded me of when I watched The Dark Knight, it rises. It's only if I watch the trilogy. Well, with Star Trek three, it's only if I watch two, three, four. If I do a watch of two, three, four, all their movies as a whole. With five, it's very interesting. You should say that, Holly, because um, I have to rewatch it to remember or not whether I hate it. But from what I'm at, at the top of my head, I think I want to say that it might be a Star Trek film that gets a little bit more hate than it deserves because there's true from Kirk's speech about knowing when and how he's going to die and kind of getting that to the era of films we're about to talk about. It, it kind of really set up, it kind of really did some foreshadowing for that and some Star Treks to follow. I don't, I can't say that I like it better than most, but I don't think I hate it as much as most. And of course, Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, phenomenal. As we get into the Picard era here, this is interesting because some people think that only First Contact is, is the good movie of this crew. And I don't agree with that at all because I happen to love Generations. I happen to think that they, like some people call Generations their equivalent of what happened with the motion picture. And I couldn't disagree more. Um, so I would actually like to hear from Sean first. And Sean, you have something about this movie that our listeners have not heard before. You're about to blow minds and I'm going to let you say it, but let's, let's look at the Picard era as a whole, but let's, let's give a nice focus to generations as we run through it and about how you each feel about that film. So let's start with you, Sean. One of the things I love most about Generations is that George Takei's catchphrase comes from Kirk's dying words. Oh, my. <laughs> but that's, see, there's only really one true TNG film that takes place in the known universe. For about an hour, hour and 10 minutes. Everything after that, however, has not happened. Because, because of uh, convenient writing, I guess was the phrase, Greg. Because of convenient writing, they forgot one simple thing. Soren wins. Soren succeeds and destroys everything. Picard gets sucked into the Nexus. Picard's in the Nexus. Picard, you can do whatever you want. That's what that's what Odame Brown tells him. You can you're in the Nexus. You can do whatever you want. He never leaves the Nexus. He never once leaves the Nexus. Everything he did, he finds Kirk. Kirk's in the Nexus. He's like, I don't know what I'm doing here, but like you know, the scenery changes every five minutes because this is a prelude to Denny Crane, where like mad cow disease, something new every five minutes. Soren destroys the moon, sends the Nexus over the planet, blows up that planet. Everybody gets sucked into the Nexus or killed. And that's it. I know Picard saves the day, and you know him and Kirk. They beat Soren. No, they beat him in the Nexus. Soren is alive in Picard's mind inside the Nexus. They never get out. So, because of convenient writing, Picard saved the day, but they never left the Nexus. So, anything that's happened since the moment Soren blew up that moon and sent the Nexus to blow them up happened inside the Nexus. 
Why does nobody talk about this? Why? Exactly. I know. Very like, convenient writing. Sean, anytime he tells anyone that, are you, Tan and uh, Holly, are your minds blown? I, I have actually heard a version of this before. And it does, I mean, it definitely makes sense. I never, during the times I saw the movie for, you know, like the first couple of times I saw it, I, you know, I have this issue where I tend to take things at face value. So I was like, oh, all right, they got out. And, and there is even a sequence where they show them getting out. But how do you know that that was even real? Because once you're in, you're in. And then the whole thing with him meeting Guinan, well, he met Guinan in the Nexus, and maybe everything else is just them together. But she also says that she's a figment of his imagination. Yeah, yeah. She's, or or this is how you perceive, or this is how you see me, or something like that. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I have heard about that before, and that's always that. See, and that's one of the things that Star Trek has with it consistently is. And I think it's more of a logistical thing that you have people like writers changing so many times that they keep writing different storylines and each one contradicts the other one. So they have to kind of figure out a way to make it work. And that's, that's one thing that Star Trek definitely has going on more than a lot of other um, franchises is that they, because they include so much crazy science fiction fantasy stuff that you almost have to backtrack every few years just to make it make any kind of sense. So that's actually a great point. It, it's, you heard it here first, folks. Fix it. Heard no, it. you heard it yeah, first heard on it. What Does It Matter podcast. But that's not a podcast. My, yeah. my only question is, does the Nexus exist within the mind of a little boy shaking a snow globe? Uh, <laughs> only if Howie Mandel is involved. Or Denzel. Or Denzel. Or, or Ed um, Begley Jr. Um, yeah, Ed Begley Jr. So, or, or Mr. With, Mr. Feeney. With you figuring out that that that, as you don't call it lazy writing, but convenient writing, um, is that then where your psyche, if you will, took you with the rest of uh, John Luke Picard's stories I and mean, whatever was well, to come now, that um, followed that? Before we go any further. As far as Jean-Luc Picard's further stories, I have not seen season two nor three of Picard yet, so uh, no I would, problem. I would I would really appreciate not hearing any more. I already knew about the punk guy on the bus, so that's yeah. I already knew that. But so no, because this well, is there was three I movies of, like, to follow. That's what yeah. Something, <laughs> but this is something I only thought of like five or six years ago, while it was really, really, really high. So now that I'm sober. <laughs> So, all right, so Generations is also probably my third favorite Star Trek film. And um, with Star Trek, the motion picture in the first one, I mentioned Faye Grant. Well, I mentioned her husband. Uh, Now I'm going to mention Dennis McCarthy, who scored something that Faye Grant was in. I love McCarthy's score for Generations. I think it's wonderful. Beautiful. Yeah, absolutely beautiful. It's it's probably my favorite work of his because, I mean, I love V, the 80s V. Thank you. But uh, when the music on that was good from McCarthy, because he only did parts two and three of the final battle, uh, when the music was good, it was great. And when it was like, hey, we want some wannabe Star Wars cheese, that's what you got. And then you got some balloon music, which is its whole other thing. You could do two hours talking about the balloon music. But so I love McCarthy's score for that. And I, I remember when um, Encounter Farpoint aired 
I was like, all right, cool. We got some uh, OG music. Not that I spoke like that back then because that terminology <laughs> didn't exist. But then I saw, you know, music by Dennis McCarthy, like within the two minutes, uh, you know, opening scene. I was like, oh, dude, I'm going to love this. Uh, I didn't. So <laughs> Generations happens. Uh, Kirk dies, um, murdered by the, the ghost of Sulu. Oh, my. And <laughs> just but alongside the Nexus. So Kirk is dead because he died there. Or he died in Picard's brain inside the Nexus. So much to think about inside the Nexus. First contact. Jesus, what a great film. I mean, it does uh, it does create some loopholes with the original series. However, if you watch it as a standalone and just ignore anything that came before it, this is a really fun movie. Uh, probably my second favorite score. The only other spoiler I know, by the way, about Picard is the theme um, from First Contact is also the theme for season three. Spoiler alert, everybody, in case you haven't seen it. Thanks, Greg. Um, I, I like First Contact a lot. Uh, probably my fourth favorite Star Trek movie. Insurrection, I have zero opinion on because I've never seen it in one full sitting. Saw it in the theater, fell asleep halfway through. Rented it, fell asleep around the same part, tried years later to watch. I've seen every part of the movie, just not one consistent sitting. And I think there might still be about five minutes towards the end. But from what I understand, I'm not missing anything. I can't speak to that. So I don't know. Um, uh, I know that Salieri is the bad guy again because, you know, practice. And, and it's once again a beautiful Jerry Goldsmith score, but I think it's a it's so much of a lullaby that that movie. It doesn't matter what time of day I put that on, I'm getting a nap whether I want to or not. So when insomnia kicks in, I should just own that movie and just pop it on. And if I ever see that movie in full, I got to go and see a doctor. So there's that. And then you mentioned Dark Knight Rises before, and I really love that movie about Tom Hardy being born in darkness and molded by it. And then there's also Nemesis with Tom Hardy being born in darkness and molded by it. And um, yeah, uh, what do I have to say about that? That's a piece of shit movie. And uh, <laughs> just because just because it was better than Insurrection doesn't make it a good movie. Uh, and just because I've seen it in full and I have an Insurrection doesn't make it. It's 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 terrible. And I would ra rather watch paint dry with grass growing through it than to watch Nemesis again. The budget sucks. The acting's, you know, like this is a bunch of people like, I want to work with you again and we need to fulfill a contract. But there's other stuff I'd rather do. But apparently there's a two and a half hour cut of that movie that's really good. Um, I'll take their word for it. But uh, I have to I have to dye my hair that day. So but I'm, I'm, yeah. I was always very appreciative of your thoughts of generations, though, because if you didn't care for that one, you would like only one of them, which a lot of people only like first contact. But Captain Radner, you know, I, I know that next generation means the world to you. It means your heart and. My thoughts on Generations is that it's a beautiful film. And I think it's so underrated as a Star Trek movie and as a film. You know, 
and and I remember seeing it in the theater, and and I remember it it really is what brought me into the next generation world. It's also a Christmas it, movie. Yes, it's a Christmas movie because it's this a Christmas movie. Um, and I know your feelings are first, but but let's let's take a whole look at the Picard era because I actually don't know what you think of Insurrection and Nemesis, but but I don't really know what you think of Generations for that matter. What is your general impressions of the Picard era, starting with Generations? So Generations was something much as we have men- mentioned, but not to as severe a degree as with the search for Spock. Knowing that we had ended the original series era of films, moving into the next generation era of films, everybody wanted some semblance of a crossover or a handing of the torch. That's what this movie was. Regardless of whatever direction it would take, the overarching idea of this movie was we will now pass the torch to, well, literally, quote, the next generation. Just the idea that they had, that they had Malcolm McDowell in it. Is it Roddy McDowell? Am I saying the wrong McDowell? I always get it's those Malcolm. McDowells confused. It's Malcolm. It's Malcolm. It's Malcolm. Yeah, it's the guy from Tanker. Yeah, just, no, 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 yeah. yeah the guy, Tanker, come on. I mean, just the, just the, you know, the last time I saw you, you were doing some really strange things with underage girls in a movie. Um, you're not sure about that? <laughs> What's Clockwork Orange? I have a thing with eyes, so I can't watch that movie. Oh, oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. Well, that yeah. makes a lot of sense. Uh, almost a lot like First Contact has a couple of things with eyes. God damn it, that first scene! But yeah, it's, that's, right, that's what it's I'm... right in the beginning, but that's it. That's it. Oh, dude, I totally forgot about that. Thanks for um, reminding me. Yeah, I know. Uh, sleep well tonight, sir. Eat me. <laughs> I'm going I'm to try again to ask, yeah. did, you mean, did you mean him, uh, an in-joke, if you will, about him being in Clockwork Orange or about him being in Time After Time? No, so oh, no, no. it was Dallas actually Clockwork Sunday. Orange where he brings the two girls home from the record store. Oh, so I that mean, was if, like, if it was, yeah, yeah. You know, time after time, he was just like the bad. He was just the antagonist to Christopher Reeve, right? No, no, no. No, that's yeah, somewhere in time. Movie. Somewhere no, in time. Somewhere okay. Time, time after time. Okay, no, the other um, one was uh, um, the, the David guy with Warner the time was machine. Jack the Ripper. Yeah, yeah. He, he was H.G. Yeah. Wells. David Warner was H. Jack the Ripper. Yeah, yeah. And I forget who the lead uh, the lead actress was. In time after time, time, Mary Steenburgen. Mary Steenburgen. Yeah, okay. I, I always yeah. go to Vet Mimeo, yeah. but yeah, Mary Steenburgen. But but I mean, Generations was really, I, I didn't have a big issue with it. I just felt that sometimes it left me feeling flat. It didn't give you everything you needed. It seemed like it was more of a, here we go. We're going to bring all these guys in that are your favorites. And we're going to spread everything out. And we're going to set the groundwork. And now because Kirk is letting you know it's okay, well, then it's okay you know, for us to proceed along with just doing Next Generation movies. So. I felt in a sense it was necessary. I didn't feel it was bad per se, but I felt there were points that were sort of lacking and could have been uh, held up in a better way. I like the idea of 
Same thing we discussed before, Sauron being the, well, in this one, the villain, but technically the antagonist that has a well-thought-out reason for doing what he's doing. This is something I noticed that they started doing a lot around the Next Generation era, is that your bad guys would actually have a, a, a reason for doing what they're doing. They weren't just mustache-twirling villains. They, you know, they had a trauma they were acting off of. So that was a nice thing to add. It just didn't seem like it was enough. And I felt that the, I guess, at this point, after Sean's insight, the quote-unquote death of Kirk, even though the way they put it, it still kind of lacked a little something to it. I don't, I don't think it, it kind of seemed an anticlimactic kind of death for him. And also what I noticed through the movie is Shatner wasn't being Kirk. Shatner was being Shatner. He was, I'm going to live on a ranch with some horses and I'm, you know, going to cook, you know, food and split logs. And he was being his idealized version of himself. He wasn't being Kirk anymore, which, you know, to a certain degree, you said you could say he was doing that all the time, but I think it was way more obvious with this one. I'm not going to say a whole lot about first contact because I've already done that ad nauseum. So you guys can look at our first contact or listen to our first contact podcast. One of the best Star Trek movies, possibly aside from Wrath of Khan, just the idea that they would decide to take a Star Trek movie. We've already done political drama. We've already done sci-fi thriller. And now to do a horror movie in space, to, to bring that aspect into it, something completely new, some of the best acting, best cinematography, best special effects, all the characters are where you need them to be. And they all shine very, very well. All the actors put up a good performance. And it just, there's not enough that I could say about it. So I'm going to skip ahead just beside the fact that I'm going to say Jonathan Frakes was involved in directing it. And also, if you notice everything Jonathan Frakes directs tends to have a dark aspect to it, which is what I always appreciate about his work. Moving on to Insurrection, this movie wounds me deeply. And it, it wounds me deeply for a different reason other than that it basically sucked. It wounds me deeply because I have a family member. So we have family in different parts of the country. Some of the parts of our family live near Hollywood and actually work for, uh, it was either Universal or Paramount at that time. Um, well, that would have been filmed at Paramount. Right. Or so they worked for Paramount. One of my family members went out to visit and they said, hey, I work at Paramount. You want to tour the studio? They said, great, let's get a tour of the studio. Insurrection was filming at the time. They take them on to the Enterprise set of Insurrection. This family member of mine that has little to no love or respect for Star Trek gets to tour the entire Enterprise set, which hurts me and degrades me internally. And then when they come home and they come to visit, they go, oh, by the way, they had one of these lying around and they said I could take it full production script of insurrection. So I had the full 
script of insurrection. I probably still have it somewhere in my house. I read the whole damn thing before the movie even came out. So I knew everything that was going to happen. And when I watched it, I was like, wow, this is so much worse than the script. <laughs> and, and it you just know, hurt. Yeah. Because this was the, the most, the closest I've ever been to an insider in Star Trek. And just the idea that I got to see it before it even happened. And it was so damn disappointing. I'm sorry. Go yeah, ahead, Greg. Um, well, one of the things that's so heartbreaking about it, too, uh, and I guess I don't have to say this then at the end after uh, Holly speaks, if you speak of Nemesis, but with Insurrection, it was written by Michael Peeler uh, or Pillar, who had left Star Trek at the time. You know, I'm not, you, you know, may he rest in peace. And he, he wrote some of the best episodes of all the series from Next Gen to uh, Voyager. Um, but he left to become a screenwriter. He left, to, he, he wrote, um, I, 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 the timeline's a little off, but I think the last one he wrote was a Voyager episode, which was pretty good. He wrote the freaking best of both worlds. He freaking wrote that. And now he's, he left to do movies. Now he's writing a Star Trek movie and that's what he gave us. So that's why I'm personally offended by that film. Yeah, if, if anybody was going to say, like, if I did a full review of Insurrection, we'd get a repeat of DJ Nick's favorite review of mine, which is A Night at the Roxbury. Go check out MSV Podcast's uh, SNL Movie Roundtable to hear that. I would speak of Insurrection probably the same way. I, I find it so bad, it's personally offensive, and that it so overshadows for me what I do remember of Star Trek V, so that I would call Star Trek, uh, and even the motion picture, I would probably call Insurrection the worst of the Star Trek movies. So, uh, but, but let us know. I'm very interested what you would feel about Nemesis. All right. So now we're going to get into the second film that wounds me deeply. A couple of different <laughs> okay. reasons. First reason, Brent Spiner wrote part of the movie. I love Brent Spiner with a deep passion. Possibly something I should never tell him if I ever meet him in person. And just the idea that, that he, he wrote this and I watched an interview where he was talking about how they were writing the movie and what they were thinking. And their original ideas were just like so, you know, out of the box and they finally settled on this. And then when they decide at the end, who's going to die and Spiner's like, well, it's going to be either this one or this one. And we have to make a decision and they make the decision. So it hurt me because, you know, I, I, you supposedly lose one of our favorite characters. And that at the same time, he wrote the damn thing. And it's like, I know he's better than that. And I know he's so much more talented than that. And I never want to, I never want to ever mention it if I'm ever in his presence, because I got to be, I have a feeling he might have a few regrets about it too. Um, I did like, I did like, uh, uh, geez, Tom Hardy's, I did like Tom Hardy's performance. He definitely did a good job of being creepy. Okay. Just, I mean, the can I smell your hair? You just like, it was, I was like, wow, 
they really kind of went there with that, didn't they? So he was good in that sense. I enjoy actors who are willing to physically change themselves for different roles that they're in. Christian Bale does it all the time. Tom Hardy's another one. And I mean, to extreme extents, like the these guys are doing them. I'm sorry. The, the machinist. machinist. Yeah. Yes. And then he, and then he did Batman, like what a year later, he did Batman later? begins first. Then right. he did the machinist where his like, right. his diet was something like really creepy, like, like a apples and coffee. Apples and coffee. That's what it was. And then he does Dark Knight, like after that, and he bulks up. He and De Niro are gonna have heart attacks the way that they keep upping yes. and downing their weight. They're, they're yeah, I'm I think, sorry to I interrupt, think, but the machinist also no, had no. Michael Ironside, so it's no that that's not that's not an interruption at all. I'm actually glad that you brought that up and just the health issues. It's either that or these guys' livers are just gonna jump out of their mouths one day. It's like you can't like that. Just the idea that they can do stuff like that, and and Hardy does this too. That he was oh, yeah. so he was so shrimpy in this, and then like a few years later, he's doing Dark Knight, and he's just huge. And he even says he was too heavy for that movie. That he was I'm like, I was just so And then that he's doing you know Sean Connery impersonation the whole time. Yeah, she is. You know. Yeah, <laughs> just put an H at the end of every S. You got it. Yes. Yes. Well, you know, you actually pronounced herbs because there's an H in it. Yes. Sure. And uh, <laughs> so it was. It was really great. That's that's something that I always appreciated about some of these actors. They'll get so deep into character acting that you won't even recognize them from you know one to the next. You know, I mean, uh, what was it? The, the guy from uh, Gangs of New York. Are you talking about Daniel Plainview? I can't remember. Da- Daniel Day-Lewis? Daniel Day-Lewis, yeah. Daniel, Daniel Day-Lewis, him, same thing. You watch him one movie to the next, and you're like, is this the same? It's, well, it's really a great thing when you get into that. Like, I think, it's, I think it's a Stanislavski method where you're doing the method where you live the life of your character. It's not Stanislavski. It's, right? it's, it's Strasbourg. It's, Strasbourg, it's, right. Yeah, Strasbourg. Okay, so I mean, just that idea that just that whole method acting. I mean, Dustin Hoffman did it a few times. You hear a great acting it, it, teacher, Stanislavski. That's Tommy Wiseau's acting teacher. <laughs> <laughs> wow! Yes. Hello, Greg. Why are you standing like Statue of Liberty? So, so it was. So Nemesis was a letdown to the finale finale should have been something encompassing it was a letdown i was i was bored by it again like you guys have said before one of the few star trek movies i've maybe only watched once in its entirety and you know and again troubles me to say that but you know it is what it is but i am willing to give mr spiner another chance and we did and they, we won't say anything more but Redeemed anyway, Dan Holly. So generation era. Yeah. Yeah. Generation. I don't love it. I don't. Okay. I I enjoy it. I think it's a it's a beautiful movie. Like that that scene in stellar cartography is just absolutely gorgeous. 
Um, it has moments that I adore. I like the whole, you know, the, 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 let me guess Tuesday. True. Like I, that whole bit at the beginning is fantastic. Um, I like the, I like the, the ceremony on the holodeck. Um, I kind of hate that they kill off Kirk by dropping a bridge on him. Well, I guess they didn't really kill off Kirk if, uh, Sean is to be uh, agreed with there. So, but I hate that in Picard's Nexus mind inside the little boy's head, shaking the snow globe that they dropped a bridge on Kirk to kill him. <laughs> um, but I do, I do enjoy it. It's, it's as I've gotten older, I've actually liked it more. Um, the first time I saw it in theaters, I was not thrilled. Um, Although funny story, my friend Mike uh, actually broke down in tears when they killed off Kirk and had a full out crying fit in the car on the way home. Um, but yeah, I do I do enjoy it, and it's one that I do go back to somewhat often. Um, First contact, another one of those top three constant rotating star trek movies i love first contact so much i love the fact that it's a zombie horror action movie set in star trek i like that you have almost those elements of the first alien film where they're you know they're walking through the assimilated sections um i love zephram cochran i love drunk deanna troy um, I really wish I didn't miss the episode where we deep dove into it because that's another one I could wax poetic upon for long times. Um, and I also am a sucker for a good time travel story in Star Trek, no matter what. Um, Insurrection. Insurrection could have been a 44 minute long episode in season two of Star Trek. It the quality, the plot, they did not need to make it a feature length film. They did not need to shoehorn uh Picard ride driving an ATV like a madman into it. They didn't need to. It's just it should have it should have and could have been an episode in season one or two of Next Generation. It would have been fine. Yeah. It would have been one of those ones that's like, oh, it's this episode again. Uh, I guess I'll watch it. <laughs> But as a feature-length movie, uh, I, I, yeah, uh, hard pass. And Nemesis. Nemesis is a dumpster fire, <laughs> to put it mildly. I. Why would you insult I, a dumpster fire in that way? <laughs> you're right, because a dumpster fire at least helps eat up trash and provide heat. <laughs> and provides entertainment. I hate the sets in it. I hate the sets on the, the ship. I think they're like some weird HR Geiger meets Star Wars, like just done badly. I, I don't like the action sequences. I don't like the fact that they killed off Data. I don't like how they killed off Data and then had Data's another, another android just dumber that was still alive and then it, I won't spoil what happens to that either for Sean. Yeah. Yeah. Sean, you're good. You're good. Um, you're good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just, again, it's, I saw 
I saw it in theaters at a midnight showing under the influences of several different chemicals. And I enjoyed it then. And then I tried to watch it not under the influence of said chemicals. And I have no idea what I was thinking. So, yeah, it's very interesting how the uh, Holly, anything else to sum up the Picard years or that pretty much uh, does that for you? I, I think I think that wraps it up pretty well for me. It's so interesting how the Picard crew, I mean, they got first contact, which is on so many favorite lists, not just I always say it, it's it's up there with just sci fi film fans. You don't even have to be a Star Trek fan. Of course, that was the film that we selected for DJ Nick to watch the non Trek watcher. He watched it. He's a. He's a cinephile himself, enjoyed the hell out of it, all great. And so we did get this one non-division-causing film for that crew. But it's so interesting how they really did become, I always say this, they really did become the quintessential, more popular of all the series crews. But not when it comes to their movies. They, they really, a lot of people just say, well, they had first contact, but that's it. But I couldn't disagree more in terms of my feelings on generations, I, I, it was, that was the film that turned me on to the next generation to, to really, cause I used to watch it for years and I did, I of course always say I came into Star Trek from the films directly from the films. And um, it started with the originals, but with next generation, I'm watching generations for years and love it. I'm in tears from it. It just means a lot to me about the message of it with, with time and, and, um, how, you know, you have the one view of time going, it's going to catch up with you, it's going to catch up with you, and then Picard's the finalization of, no, it'll work with you, you know, um, and from the Soren end, and, and, and yeah, Soren as a villain is so wonderfully, brilliantly crafted on his ends justify the means thing and do anything to get there, but, but, he, but he's, he's so ruthless in thinking that everything that he's doing this for to be with his family again, so ruthless in, in thinking, but that's going to now happen to other people's families. What, what happened to me because I'm doing this. So he's just, I find him to be a perfect villain. I find the movie, maybe it's not a perfect movie. I just over the years too, and trying to reevaluate it going, okay, do I see what others see about this being a weak film? I, I just don't see it. First contact of course needs no, uh, uh, explanation insurrection i've already spoke on with nemesis i i did finally if you will watch it when I, I i've defended nemesis more than others and i would say that i get it but at the same time don't think it's a dumpster fire um but the last watch which is probably several years by now i still liked what i liked but realize that at some point in the film it just stops making an effort from what i remember and i i definitely have to watch i don't know if that's a movie we're going to do a full review i have not figured anything about that out uh about movies that are going to get full reviews where they're not going to get full Dude, reviews that's one of the reasons yeah miami connection gives more of an yeah. effort than Nemesis does. Well, like hell a million yeah. million times more of an effort. And that movie gives zero effort. That's why it's perfect. But what I will say, though, when you look at the Picard era, I just, I love Generation so much that I don't think of the Picard film eras as a failure in any way. And I think others because First Contact was so good. But then it is kind of a shame that after First Contact, they came back and we got those. So 
Um, you know, I'm not one of the, I'm also not one of those people who will defend just because it says Star Trek on it. I must love it. And I, we're going to, we're about to get to. You well, know, then you're not a real fan if you don't like the ball. <laughs> exactly. I do not have that mindset, but Generations does mean a lot to me. And I will always say that I think it is a beautiful film. Guys, check it out. We didn't do much spoilers on here. Well, except for the whole ending. <laughs> but uh, I do really love that film. And First Contact is worlds apart from it as a film. It's one of the most beautifully shot films ever. Like, it is just so beautifully... Uh, cinematography is just... It should have gotten an Oscar nom for that. I know it got for best... Sean, this was best score. Oscar was, was nominated, I think. I believe Mr. Goldsmith uh, did win. Yeah. That. Or makeup. No, makeup. It was nominated for makeup and lost to the clumps, I believe. Something like that. To the nutty professor. Yeah. Um, one of those or something. DJ Nick could, could, could correct me if I'm a little off in my years. But yeah, the Picard eras of films is... I can see, though, from because I went right into them from the films. I could see, I could understand now that I am a series watcher, if you just spent seven years watching them and couldn't wait for them to go to the big screen, I probably can understand why possibly Generations might have been a disappointment to some, but it will never be to me. It holds a very special place in my heart. And let's go now to one of the most division in the fandoms of star trek when we go into the three jj films we're going to just talk about them as a whole to many they are horrifically bad but to some it brought them into the into the fandom and i love that it did that without the jj films there wouldn't have been discovery and although i have my thoughts on discovery but then as a result there would there would be no picard there would be no strange new worlds the J.J., what I will give him credit for, maybe I'll wait to the end what I will give him credit for, unless it's said here. Sean, your take on those J.J. Abrams, Kelvin-verse films. As a whole? or Yeah. So, I mean, yeah. however you Hard like. But yeah. All right. So I love okay. 2009. <laughs> it's, I remember walking out of the theater saying that was so fun, but that was not yeah. a good film. Like... Oh, <laughs> uh, hello. <laughs> I can't even do that. Like Eric Bana, who is like a really, really solid actor. God, some of his deliveries were hello, I'm Nero. Dude, come on. Or Christopher. Hello, Christopher, I'm Nero. Wow. I'm I'm scared of you now. How menacing. That trill uh I saw Into Darkness in the theater with you opening night, and it was a very fun watch. But then when you sit and you think about it, wow, our galaxy is really not that well uh, monitored, is it? How did they build the Excelsior with nobody noticing this? And that's not even the biggest problem with that movie. The third movie, something happened. Was that the 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 uh, the Fast and the 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 Star Trek? Was that that's the Justin <laughs> Lin one? I really yeah. liked what's her name. I can't remember her name, but she, Montgomery Scotty. She, I thought that character was awesome. It's all I remember about that movie. Idris Elba's character, totally wasted. Totally, totally wasted. Um, I really like the cast. I think Carl Urban nails it every time. Even even in, like, when something sucks, he's still great. And I think he's, since the first movie, 
has nailed McCoy. He he is the one in the cast that has been perfect from moment one. Um, but Michael Giacchino, those scores. I can watch. I can watch a bad movie if it's got a great score. Beastmaster Two through the Portal of Time. Anybody? Great score. Robert Falk of Toy Sto- uh, Toy Soldiers and Police Academy fame. Beastmaster Two. But we're not talking about Dar and his animals. We're talking about Michael Giacchino and his Star Trek scores. My God. So that's probably my second favorite theme overall. Like I would go with like First Contact. Then like the Giacchino theme and then the Horner theme. Uh, and I know you know me as a lifelong Horner fan since uh, Battle Beyond the Stars, actually. And then Star Trek II, then Krull. And then Star Trek, like, I love me some James Horner. Giacchino just, as much as J.J. Abrams can go, I'm really not that big of a Star Trek fan. Giacchino goes, well, that's okay. I am. And here's... Yeah. <laughs> I love those scores. I... I would watch Beyond again um, if I didn't have the 2009 movie available. Uh, and Into Darkness did something that Hollywood tried to do for a while. And uh, Christoph Waltz did it too. It's like, oh, no, I'm not playing Khan. No, I'm not playing Blofeld. I'm playing a brand new character. And this is my character's name. And Doctor Strange did it. And Blofeld did it. And it was just really obnoxious. And then you get to that hour and a half mark in the movie. And it's like... I'm Khan. I'm Blofeld. Like, come on, we knew it all along. Why are you trying to lie to us, Hollywood? Like, you want to give this element of surprise with the most obvious casting? It annoyed me. Um, so yeah, the, the trilogy as a whole, eh, you know, I, I like the cast, they're fun, the music's amazing, but as a whole, uh, I mean, it's better than Nemesis. <laughs> um I'm actually going to skip to you, Holly, before Ken on the uh, on the Abrams films. Oh, oh! I was expecting another half hour break. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. So, so uh, Star Trek 2009, fun film. Um, I, and Sean's absolutely right. Carl Urban nails Bones. He's my favorite part of the J.J. Abrams films or the Calvin Verse films. Um, He's just so spot on. Uh, fun movie. I hate how the Enterprise looks. I hate, I don't know. All the best I can say about it is it's a fun movie. It's a good popcorn. You know, sit back, relax, shut your brain off. Into Darkness. Every time I watch it, I like it less every single time because i really liked it when i saw it in theaters the first time and then i watched it and then i watched it and then i watched it and my favorite part of that movie currently is robocop (laughs) i i and i again i agree with sean i hated all the marketing with when the first trailers dropped everybody was like oh it's going to be con all the fans knew it was going to be con Everybody knew it was going to be Khan, but all the press was, oh, no, it's not Khan. We're not going to do Khan. Khan's been done. We're going to do something new. Then you get the movie, and of course, it's Khan. And then beyond. I have seen that movie exactly once. Same. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Again, kind of fun. 
but just not something I really felt the need to rewatch and fast in the star Trek is, is pretty accurate to it. Um, overall, I think the Kelvin verse is, is a good thing because it has drawn people into the fandom who wouldn't necessarily be there. It did allow for discovery to get greenlit, which season two of discovery is pretty good. And other than that, it's kind of mediocre, which I'm sure we can discuss in, you know, other, another time, yeah. Yeah. other formats, people's but... time talking about that. show. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it also allowed us to have strange new worlds, which, you know, on, on the bias has been really good and Picard, which even after, you know, some, some rockiness in the first two seasons has been, the third season was absolutely fantastic. And, Oh my God! Can you believe that? And that's Picard all we'll say about us. <laughs> Picard is Luke Skywalker's God. father. Can you believe that? <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to say. I knew that. Everybody knows that. <laughs> Who doesn't know that? And and of course, you know, Lower Decks is also wrapped into that, which I think is. I don't know if people want to say it's criminally underrated, but I, I, Lower Decks is really some of the best Star Trek. It's got a really rough right first now. episode. It's that first oh. episode is kind of like, I don't know if I'm going to do this. And then it's just, it's it's my favorite Star Trek show after it's, the order. It, it, um, yeah. It, it's funny, but, Star Trek 09 uh, is already on our roster for season two, which is a funny... Uh, <laughs> maybe maybe Holly will fall on a mantle that day. I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> Um, we'll see if something else? we'll see if something explodes at work that day. Um, yeah. Anything else on um, the, on on Kelvin verse? Yeah. Lens flare cut away. <laughs> Finally, Ken Radner, your your take on the on the JJ verse? Okay, so the thing that was probably going to be the most difficult aspect of getting something like this off the ground was the cast. And if there's anything that you have to say, they definitely nailed the cast on this one. Just about, just about every single one. And, and I'm only talking about the first movie for this one. I think that the main characters, they really got them to encapsulate the spirit of the initial actors. They had the good look. I felt a little bit off about Chris Pine, but he definitely brought it through at a certain point and every everybody you know made you believe that they could be the same character which is impressive out of actors of that time the idea that they would just adopt someone else's persona that's been done before and like no you're not going to do your own spin on this you're going to do what they did and just the idea that they were willing to go through with it but then put them in a little more of an action oriented situation i two out of the three kelvin movies i liked i think quite a bit more than most people do um the first two i really didn't have much of a problem with i liked that they i like what they did with it i didn't mind them actioning it up i like some of the stuff i mean the one scene where the enterprise is getting assaulted and one of the one of the Carter walls blows open and a bunch of crewmen get sucked out into space and you hear the, the sound and the noise. And once they get sucked out into space, it's silent and they get smashed into like a, a phaser turret. 
you know, you've got Joss Whedon to thank for that silence and space thing. I just need to point okay. that out. I'm sure you know. I, that. I appreciate every. Okay, so and and now you're going to make me get into why we were robbed of six seasons in a movie of Firefly. I just even want though the we musical the movie. episode. I want the musical episode. That's all I wanted. Um, it's no Whedon's a franchise. The Firefly novels pretty solid if you haven't read yeah it's not, yeah you know the last one i was like nah, 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 but like the other books are fine the boom comics suck oh but yeah back right, to, i agree back to captain <laughs> radner by the way i didn't mean to drop that thank you sir talk about the silence in space no but it, it was it was i think that the first movie was good you're right that eric banna was kind of a wet blanket he was your generic enemy i liked that they were Look, they did everything they could with Leonard Nimoy with whatever time they had with him. And it, it wasn't bad. It's just that it was obvious what was being done. So I'm not going to say, and then, I mean, Simon Pegg was incredible. Probably one of the best Scotties ever. And John Cho was really great in what he was doing. I, I really... I didn't have a, I mean, Uhura was great, although it was a much different take than I was expecting. And, and the relationship that she had, I, I, I didn't really get that a whole lot. It didn't make a whole lot of sense to me, but I was willing to let it go. So I didn't really mind that, you know, of course, everybody, they Star Wars did up. Okay, fine. It's not like they were completely different things in the first place. So that's fine. Into Darkness, I really didn't have as much of a problem as everybody had with Into Darkness. I know that the marketing scheme was so ham-fisted, and it was so blatantly obvious. But, you know, I didn't think uh, Humperdinck Kennebach did a really bad job of what he was doing. And, you know, he it, it was okay. I I didn't like... I didn't like what they ended up doing with Pike in that. I wasn't happy with the way they brought it about with him. I felt that that was kind of wasted. I liked the whole, you know, Starfleet Command thing. His assault on Starfleet Command was actually really good. That was like a really great scene, except for Captain Pike. And I mean, it was just done well. I really liked the whole idea that they actually showed you how strong Khan can actually be. You know, and, and I was like, you know, we've been waiting. We've been hearing about this guy for, you know, 40, 30, 40 something years. And you just talk about what a badass he is. Show us what he can do. And just the idea that they showed you what he could do. And I was like, okay, now you're giving me something that I could work with. And, you know, I understand. So it was, I really was into it a whole lot more than a lot of other people were. I was willing to let a lot of other things go just for everything that went through with it. Cause I just felt it was, it was taken care of really well. It, I think the parts of it that worked, worked and the parts that didn't were, you know, minor. I felt like you could jump over them a little bit. So I'm going to, I mean, I'm going to say that, uh, you know, into darkness was, I would always rate it a little bit better than other people did. And I have seen it multiple times. So I can at least claim that I would do that. And I go back to see it. Star Trek beyond as going back to, I believe what I think what Holly said, it should have been just an episode. It really, 
And it hurts that Simon Pegg wrote it. Because I, I love Simon Pegg. I love his movies. And Beyond was just, it was just an episode. That's all that it was. It, it really, it dragged out too long. The, 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 that, that girl, that main character, I think she was in uh, uh, the Kingsman, like the first Kingsman movie. She was the girl with like, she was missing both her legs and she had knives that would shoot out of them. She, uh, it was just, it just wasn't, I mean, yeah, it was great, but how many times are you going to play sabotage in the same movie? Well, what did they do it like three times? That was, that, but that apparently pissed off Simon Pegg because um, that was supposed to be a big surprise for people watching the film. And the fact that they used it in the trailer is what pissed him off. Like it was supposed right, to be but that they big reveal at the more, end. Right. But they played it more than once Didn't in they? the same movie. And then they played it in the first movie. And it says, and all I could think of was, all right, J.J. Abrams really likes Sabotage. And he's a, a big fan song, of Beastie man. Boys. I guess it is, a, it is a good song. But it was just, they, they kind of was like, all right, all right, we've, you know, you've done this before. And as, you know, this great, you know, producer, director, you should be above that sort of thing. Beyond just, it just missed it for me for some reason. I, I really... I can't pin it down. It just seemed like it didn't have anything that I wanted. And I did read early on that when Peg was talking about it, he said, we're going to style it after one of the old, you know, the original series style of TV episodes. And it's like, yes, yeah, style it after it, but don't make it so vapid that you could literally condense it into 30 minutes and it would have had everything in it that you needed. So I felt left down about beyond they've been talking about a fourth one. I don't know. I just, I just hope they take it in a different direction, but I was so I'm two out of three for, you know, okay. for the Abrams verse. That's fair enough. What, what I, the only thing I'm going to say about it, cause I think we may do full movie reviews on the Abrams verse, not sure. But one thing I'm going to say about it, I remember seeing the first one in the theater and remember seeing the big letters of Star Trek. And I said, I think I understand what's going on here. And I think they're trying to make it cool to be a Star Trek fan. And I think that the film accomplished that. And I like the young uh, viewers that it brought in. Um, I liked that it made Star Trek quote unquote cool. I didn't know what the hell they were doing the first time I saw it because going in, we were all led to believe these were the early days of Kirk and the crew. It was them meeting after the Academy being assigned to the Enterprise. We didn't, you know, so the first time I was watching it, I had an issue with, what? What are they doing here? What? Wait, wait, this is not continuity. What is this? But then on some rethinking, I respect the hell out of Abrams and Kurtzman and Orchie for figuring out how to do a reboot, remake, sequel, and prequel all at once. That's not easy to do, and to do it without hurting anything else I really admired them for that. Uh, Into Darkness was great in 3D IMAX with the company of Sean Fast. I mean, that was amazing. Uh, it's it's a great movie to look at, I guess you could say. And Ken, you gave me new perspective on that one in, in terms of that they actually showed us what Khan can do because recently when we had the non-Trek watchers on to review Wrath of Khan in full, John and Kyle did point out, well, this is supposed to be the mega Khan, but he didn't really do anything, but talk to a view, talk to Kirk on a view screen. So 
you did make a great point there. And even in Space Seed, he did, we didn't really see what he could do until now. So you make a great point. And beyond, I'm lying if I said I remember a thing about it. It didn't, I saw it once in the theater and it didn't make enough of, a, of an impression on me um, to remember anything about it. So I can't really give it a, a noble review, if you will. But I will say if they do make a fourth one, I not only hope that it does happen to have a proper send off for them, that's why I would hope it happens to have a proper send off and maybe give a good film with them, like as fun as the first one, but you know, maybe without some of the plot holes, if you will, in Into Darkness. And hey, I appreciate Into Darkness's flip universe of of Wrath of Khan. I just I do. I appreciate it, but yeah, upon seeing it not just for the eye candy that it is, it leaves a little to be desired. Although when they mentioned section 31 and that, it was almost like a sign of things to come from Alex Kurtzman and some of the things that he would be doing in Discovery, you know, uh, coming soon. And I'm glad that they kept that you did see the first season of Picard, Sean. So I'm glad that they kept the events that happened in the 24th century in canon with, with, because, hey, where were where was the crew of the Enterprise then? Where were the characters we know when that happened uh, to Romulus? You know, so I'm happy about that. So um, I appreciate the Abrams films for what they are in terms of films, but I love the hell that it brought Star Trek back from the dead. And on that note, folks, we want you to email us at sttupodcast at gmail.com or DM us on Twitter. That's right. We don't mind DMs. DM us on Twitter at STTU Podcast to let us know your thoughts on the three eras of the Star Trek movie. So, Sean, we really thank so, you for coming on. I, I, I actually know of an episode in season two that we will invite you on already. Uh, that being said, when you're not here talking about Star Trek films, where can folks find you on the interwebs? Well, if you want to find me on the interwebs, even as you are listening to my voice on this episode, you can go on to Twitter and find me at Sean Faust because I still use it until it's the end. I miss MySpace, and I'm sure in years I will be lamenting the demise of Twitter. Or if you just go to Linktree <laughs> and look up Sean Faust music, all my links are there. And what's really important that I have to tell you all about I love cats. I can't get enough of cats. My full-time job is working with cats. Uh, yes, see, Holly has shown me this beautiful cat. I love cats so much that my full-time job is working in animal rescue. Can you hear me? She? What's her name? No, name? they're they're uh so that one is River and the other one is Kaylee. Can you guess where those oh, names are from? Oh shiny. <laughs> shiny indeed well i will tell you about my song signal that uh starts off where the show ends and ends where the film ends or does it signal by sean faust you like it and if you like uh comic rock geek genius mikey mason i wrote a song about a guy named jane with him that's also available but the cats the cats we got to get back to the cats i have this goal of 1 million sales. This does not make me a millionaire after all the cuts and all the payouts and the taxes and the stuff. 1 million sales of my song, Genocidum, 
so I can have a nice cushion so cat owners such as yourself, sir, or animal rescues that I don't work at, that, hey, um, my cat needs surgery and I'm going to have to surrender him to a, a shelter. No, you don't. Here's some money. One million sales of my song, Gin Asylum, will give me that kind of cushion to save not just the animals' lives and their livelihood, but just the animals' caretakers. I have a friend that I love dearly. She is constantly rescuing feral animals, getting them fixed. Look at that handsome, handsome, beautiful, beautiful cat on Captain Radner's phone. Folks, you can't see what I'm seeing, but folks, listen. This Gin Asylum by Sean Faust, 1 million sales. Have I said that enough? I want to help cats and their caretakers. This is so important to me. When some when somebody's saving animals and spaying and neutering them at their own expense just to save the cat population, they need somebody out there to say, hey, here's some cash. I want to be that guy for a lot of people. So please look up my song, Gin Asylum, Amazon, iTunes, um, wherever else you would buy music. It's $1. How much do you spend on a cup of coffee a day? Multiply that by seven. Multiply that seven by 52. That's how much you spend in a year on coffee. $1 once and then tell your friends. That's all I'm asking. I need a million people to do this out of the kindness of their hearts. This isn't for validation for me, although I hope you like the song. This is for me to say, hey, I want to do more with what I've got and what I've done in the past. And my song, Gin Asylum, is the one to do that with. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, know. you so much. for sharing pictures of your cats with me. It's awesome. Absolutely. And thank you once again for being with us tonight. And we hope to have you again. Well, folks, this is usually the part where I hand it off to Dan Martin. And that might be one of the things I do momentarily. But we got some season-ending treats for you. Uh, before we end here tonight. So let's get that started. So as you guys know, we've been running a contest for the past several shows on winning a personalized Star Trek song about anything within the franchise. And we got submissions and we selected a winner. So therefore we selected a song. And that winner is... Mr. Noah Crawford of Clifton, Virginia, congratulations. We picked your entry, and the song that that is is a song on the Tribbles, everybody's favorite Star Trek things, whatever you want to call them. Fuzzy, breedy, eaty things. And that song was done by Aaron Coutier of YourCustomJingle.com. And he has given us this song that we are going to premiere right now, The Tribble Song, by Aaron Cloutier of YourCustomJingle.com. Let's see what we got here. Take it away, Aaron. the 
trip down to intensive care. You mean sick bay? That's what happens when you're born pregnant. And now they got into the food replicators. It's a good thing you're cute. Cause I'm losing patience. All I want is my chicken sandwich and a cup of coffee. Is that too much to ask for? We've had enough and now The Klingons are planning how To take them all out Before they take control of the ship And all the humans say Hey, you can't just kick them out Just look at that face and lack of sound They're not too subtle, as we know And that's the trouble Trouble with tribbles And there you have it folks The winning entry in our Create Your Own Star Trek song with Aaron Coutier of YourCustomJingle.com On the Tribbles Now that you've heard it and you've heard Aaron's work Get this folks He just took that from the information that was provided to us from Noah, and we put that into the submission on yourcustomjingle.com, giving him everything, all the facts, and that is what he came up with, and he can do that just for you as well. So go to Aaron's website, yourcustomjingle.com, follow him on Twitter at yrcustomjingle, yourcustomjingle.com, spelt exactly as it sounds, and he asks you three simple questions about your song. You can get a song about anything, literally anything. Um, one of the things some people have issues with is expressing themselves or telling somebody how they really feel or even telling themselves how they really feel. Yourcustomjingle.com is great. In addition to this triple song you just heard, you could hear some other samples of his work, maybe in different genres. You could go through all different genres like that. And he is still running the promotion as of this recording that you put in the code Star Trek 20 and he will take 20% off a personalized song for you. So Aaron, thank you very much for that incredible work. And Noah, thank you very much for your incredible submission on Tribbles. Maybe we'll have a contest again down the line. Um, I also must promote, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't promote John Seymour's new podcast, The Hour of Comics is Upon Us, all about comic books in which John, Keith Bliss, and Jason Gurren talk about comic books. I was on that show reviewing X-Men versus the Avengers. I had a lot of fun. They got a lot of stuff coming up. If you're a big comic book fan, it's something to check out. Uh, as of this recording time, the first four episodes are on John Seymour's Bullshit Hour with John Seymour platform, but the, it, those episodes will probably make it to the Hour of Comics is Upon Us platform, um, but those episodes are going to come pretty quick, more episodes. So check that out at the hour of comics is upon us for now. I would like to hand it back to Dan Hully. Dan, any parting words for this season? Now guys, we are le not leaving you exactly high and dry. There'll probably be some bonus shows between now and next season. Uh, and of course, keep an eye on our social medias and Twitters and all that stuff to see, uh, announce any bonus shows. Holly, anything to say about this season and to our listeners or to us or anything? Just uh, it, it's been fun chatting Star Trek with you guys. I know this uh, 
this podcast kind of, we first started talking about it. I mean, it's almost three years ago at this point. Um, and I'm glad we finally get to do it. And I'm glad that we, you know, I get to chat on a regular basis with a bunch of, you know, you know, such a good crew and that we get along so well. And hopefully sometime in the future, we can, we can do a live recording where we're all together. Um, Absolutely. And I just pretty much, you know, it's been, it's been a lot of fun. Um, and I just want to thank everybody who's given us a listen and given us a follow on social media and given us any feedback and, uh, just want to let everybody know there's more to come. Absolutely. Captain Ken Radner. Well, I, I can't express how thankful I am to be involved in this. I mean, just the idea that I get to speak and make content about something that's one of my most favorite entertainment franchises in the world that I've loved since I was a child. That's been a part of my life for such a long amount of time that has helped me to formulate some beneficial worldviews. It's just so great that I can maybe possibly even get to pay a little respect to that aspect and that work, that body of work really means a lot to me. And if any of you listening enjoyed anything that we had to say, I'm eternally grateful. I hope you stick with us. We have another season that's going to be coming up. That's going to be really great. We have a few other things we're going to branch off into that I think you're going to find to be really interesting. And I'm so really glad that everybody got to join us. And I'm really glad just as, as Mr. Hulley said, we got to really work together with such a great group of people and make something that I think is very beautiful. So I appreciate it all. And thank you so much. And here's to next season. Absolutely. Ken. Hey, Ken, any word right now on MSV podcast and your regime of what's to come? We have, so we've already set up the subject for our maiden voyage of the resurgence of MSV podcast. And I'm going to arrange for that to come into fruition within the next few weeks. And then we're going to begin on a bit of a different journey than the Star Trek Undiscovered podcast has taken. However, a lot of people will still find a lot of familiar ground to walk upon. And, and it's going to be very interesting with a different crew of people and a whole bunch of different subjects and that. We're going to play fast and loose with it in the beginning, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. I hope you'll join us. Well, I can't wait. And, folks, can't, of course, forget about our resident uh, – well, we have a resident DJ and DJ Nick, but our re re another resident on-air personality who's on the air in uh, Michigan right now as we speak. Um, but, of course, he still had to send in a message for everybody. Take it away, Dan Martin. I'm just stopping by quickly to say, man, I really enjoyed this season of Star Trek The Undiscovered Podcast. Had a lot of fun, loved being able to talk to some of our great guests, and to learn things that I hadn't known before. I had no idea that Grace Lee Whitney could make good spaghetti. I had no idea that Robert Picardo made good pizza. So I learned things that I never knew before this year on Star Trek The Undiscovered Podcast. Very cool. Again, a big thank you going out to Greg for inviting me to be a part of this show. I really appreciate it. You guys have an awesome time.
And thank you so much, Dan. Martin, thank you, everybody. Yeah, you know, I, you guys, words are beautiful. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart, Dan Hulley, Ken Radner, Dan Martin, all our guests. And of course, I can't forget about another founding member, Matt Millsop, who did decide to step down as a regular panelist, but still your um, you know, contribution to this podcast does not go unremembered. So thank you so much to Matt and thank you to all our listeners. Thank you to all our guests. And of course, thank you to DJ Nick for the flawless tech work on this show. Uh, we cannot thank you enough. We cannot thank everybody else enough. <laughs> DJ Nick beeped in and said hello, but left before I could say, hey, do you want to say something, DJ Nick? Because I know he would have felt on the spot like that. Um, but uh, it's been great. Uh, it's been an excellent six months. And yes, here is to next season. And uh, hey, where do you find the crew? Where, where can you hear all of us so that you can know when bonus shows are coming up? Because there will be bonus shows. Don't want to leave you high and dry. I'm going to hand it back over to Mr. Dan Martin to tell you all where you can find the team. Good night, everybody, and see you next season. Thank you for listening to Star Trek The Undiscovered Podcast. Find our team members, Greg Vorob, on Facebook, G-R-E-G-V-O-R-O-B on YouTube at Greg Vorob, on Twitter at Greg underscore Vorob. Also, check out MSV Podcast Presents The Fake and the Whimsy. Daniel Hawley on Facebook, H-U-L-L-E-Y, and on Twitter at Bland underscore Dull underscore Don't. Ken Radner on Facebook, K-E-N-R-A-D-N-E-R. And me, Dan Martin, at Baseman Dan Martin 3700 on YouTube. And you can also join me on WHMI.com weeknights, 7 p.m. to 10 Eastern Time, and Saturday afternoons, 3 p.m. to 7 Eastern Time. Livingston County's own Classic Hits. Find this podcast on Facebook at the groups Star Trek Fans United and Star Trek The Undiscovered Podcast. Like us on Facebook at Star Trek The Undiscovered Podcast on Twitter at STTU Podcast or shoot us an email to sttupodcast at gmail.com Thank you once again for listening to Star Trek The Undiscovered Podcast and until next time, live long and prosper. <laughs>